Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 407 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab. We can fix anything. Good evening. The job of trying to salvage the mission of Skylab 1 has begun. The three astronauts, Pete Conrad, Dr. Joseph Kerwin, Paul Weitz, have arrived on the scene 270 miles above the Earth, made an initial inspection, and apparently found no problems which looked unsurmountable. Their launch this morning was not quite as spectacular as those earlier trips to the moon, the Saturn 1B, which sent them aloft being just no match in power or size for the giant Saturn V. But the job was done without a hitch. Five, four, three, engine sequence starting. Two, one, zero, we have launch commit and we have liftoff. The clock is running and Skylab has cleared the tower. 108,000 miles and seven and a half hours later, they rendezvoused just as planned over Guam with the crippled Skylab. And they found there just what Houston thought they would find. The meteorite and sun shield stripped away for the most part. The solar panel on this side of the spacecraft gone entirely. The solar panel on this side, which was to have deployed about like this and dropped the uh, solar window shade down here, cocked at an angle about like that. The television pictures and the astronauts' description uh, came back to Houston and confirmed just that. They give you a brief description as you suspected solar wing one, two, right? Two is gone, completely off the bird. Solar wing one is in fact partially deployed in the reason that you've got different readings not symmetric between your three solar panels is there's a bulge of meteorite shield underneath it in the middle and it looks to be holding it down. I, I think that we can take care of that with the SEVA. I, it looks at first inspection uh, like we ought to be able to get it out. The gold foil has turned considerably black in the sun. Hey, Houston. Go ahead. On the vent modules, all the covers are still intact. The, the covers did not leave the vent modules on wing number one. Those pictures gave Houston enough information to decide whether to have one of the astronauts later on use a shepherd's crook to try to pull the remaining solar panel out to its full length. After a night's sleep tonight, the crew will venture into the crippled laboratory tomorrow and attempt to deploy the umbrella shade to bring down the temperature and make the interior livable and workable. If they can do that, their goal will be a full 28-day mission of scientific experiments and research. More work over a longer time than man has ever achieved in space. This is Walter Cronkite, CBS News Space Center. The Skylab 2 crew went ahead and docked the command and service module to the front port of the orbital workshop. Docking allowed the command and service module to save fuel that otherwise would have been used for station keeping. Once docked, the crew ate dinner and prepared for the stand-up EVA. This was Pete Conrad's fourth space flight, 
So the sight of the huge Skylab docked in front of him brought back memories of earlier missions. He commented to Houston, quote, Boy, I've had some big things on my nose in space before, but this is by far the biggest. It sure beats the Agena or lunar module, end quote. Now the crew was ready to begin the stand-up EVA. Recall the purpose of this EVA was to release the solar wing that was still attached. To make things more difficult, the procedure was attempted during a communications blackout. With their pressure suits still on, the crew undocked from Skylab, depressurized the command module, and opened the side hatch. Paul Weitz was selected to be the astronaut standing during this strange EVA. Weitz was restrained only by Kerwin, who held his ankles and feet. Weitz used the tools while standing in the open hatch, and Pete Conrad flew the command module as close as two feet from the Skylab. Weitz would later recall that this was a very frustrating experience. With White standing in the open hatch, there was one very important precaution that had to be taken. There were four quad thruster packs on the service module. One of the four quad thruster packs faced White's back. Of course, NASA, the crew, and more than anyone, White's, had to make sure that that forward thruster could not be fired. If it did fire, White's might be barbecued in the process. So, quad thruster A forward was turned off so as not to inadvertently fire. This left Conrad with 15 out of 16 thrusters to maintain attitude. Whites pulled at the debris several times, which disturbed the stability of the Skylab station and caused the Skylab's gyros to compensate. This was a big problem because it nearly pulled Whites out of the hatch. As Whites continued to work, the command module quickly approached the night side pass where the attempt would have to be abandoned because there was no light to see by. About 40 minutes later, as the spacecraft flew in range of the California tracking station and communication was re-established, immediately the crew's struggles with releasing the solar wing were expressed to Houston in certain terms by a string of four-letter words. After Capcom reminded the crew they were on Vox, or open microphone, Pete Conrad more calmly gave a report that was rather gloomy. The big problem was a one-half inch wide strip of metal that had gotten wrapped across the solar array while the micrometeoroid shield was being torn off. Additionally, its metal bolts tangled themselves in the array. Despite White's strenuous attempts to free it, the solar array remained fixed solid. Conrad said, quote, We couldn't get it out right now. We're all trying to break it loose. It's only half an inch strap, but man, is it riveted on. We ain't going to do it with the tools we got. End quote. NASA ordered the crew to abandon the attempt for now and redock with the workshop. But even that proved more difficult than it sounds. Whites had a hard time getting back into the capsule. With the long cutters and boat hook hitting Conrad twice on the helmet, which forced him to seek shelter until Whites was back inside. Whites also kicked Kerwin in the helmet 
as he snagged console switches and uttered more unscientific words of abuse, which caused Capcom to again remind the crew that they were still on box. The crew finally did get the hatch closed and prepared for docking. When Conrad attempted to link with Skylab, the probe did not attach to the drogue. Unfortunately, this just added to the level of frustration the crew was experiencing. Conrad made three additional attempts to dock, but the probe still wouldn't attach to the drogue. On the final attempt, the crew chose a more brute force method of docking. They once again depressurized the command module and removed the forward tunnel hatch in order to bypass some of the electrical connections. Then, they used the service module's thrusters to push the two spacecrafts together. This finally caused the 12 capsule latches to fire, thus completing the very unusual docking. Conrad later reported that he burned the reaction control system engines to achieve final docking, and in doing so, he actually made a dent in the forward drogue assembly of the multiple docking adapter. Finally, at the end of a very long and tiring 22-hour day, the crew had finally docked the Skylab and they enjoyed a well-earned rest in the command module. They would sleep in the command module this night and enter the workshop the next day after their sleep period. With the crew safely docked in front of the Skylab, they couldn't help wondering what was waiting for them on the other side of the hatch. They knew the pressure inside Skylab was stable, so pressure suits would not be required. But could they stand the heat? And would there be toxic gases from overheated insulation mixed into the atmosphere? Only time would tell. Following a night's sleep in the command module, the crew spent the morning of Saturday the 26th activating and checking systems in the multiple docking adapter and airlock module. Later, they were given a go to enter the workshop. So we are progressing slow but sure, and everything so far is working. The next day, while wearing gas masks, the crew opened the hatch into the station and entered the workshop. Paul Weitz was the first inside. He reported a dry heat resembling a desert. The good news was Whites found no evidence of toxic gases and deemed the atmosphere safe. The bad news was the temperature was about 130 degrees Fahrenheit, which he called rather warm. Fortunately for the crew, it was a dry heat. In other words, the humidity was quite low so they believed they could remain inside the workshop for up to five hours. One of their first tasks now was to cool off the workshop. To do that, the crew was to deploy the parasol that would provide shade to reduce the temperature. The crew proceeded to the airlock area on the sun-facing side of the workshop and began to assemble the canister containing the parasol. The intense heat was stifling as they worked. Eventually, they had to retreat to the relatively cooler command module several times just to take a break from the oven. Preparations for installing the parasol outside without doing an EVA took some time. The crew spent about six to seven man-hours in assembling the equipment. Conrad alone took 90 minutes to put together elements of the solar parasol to deploy through the scientific airlock. 
The fact that they were working in zero-G only served to complicate and delay the parasol deployment. But eventually, the crew was able to extend the parasol, and the folded arms swung out, spreading the fabric. Visual inspection by the crew, looking out from the command module's windows, confirmed deployment. But, disappointingly, the shield had not correctly completely deployed. Only about two-thirds of the parasol deployed due to crinkling of the parasol. Still, loud cheers could be heard from mission control. And NASA expected the shield to unfold correctly during future solar passes as it heated up. By late afternoon, the canister was positioned in the scientific airlock, ready for parasol extension. Okay, Pete, uh, we had a little drop out there, some noise. Uh, could you tell us what step you're on? We're about to put Rod Delta on. Roger, copy. Okay, we had no trouble venting it down. It vented in about four minutes, and it uh, held zero for ten minutes without any outcasting. The door opened very smoothly. And so far, the right extension has gone very easily, and as I say, we're just taking a little heat break. Some four hours after the operation began, the thermal parasol was deployed. It was then placed in position close to the workshop skin. Well, we don't think so, Houston. We can see the ends of all the rods. It's completely free of anything. There's nothing hanging it up. It took about two revolutions of Skylab before temperatures began to fall. Projections showed that if the present trend continued, the workshop would be below 100 degrees the following day. It wouldn't be the most comfortable environment, but after a discussion with the crew, the decision was made to proceed the next morning with the normal flight plan. Over the next three days, the interior of the workshop cooled off quite a bit. The crew could actually determine the limits or border of the parasol just by running their hands across the inner wall of the workshop and feeling the significant change in temperature. Overnight, the internal temperature dropped to a more comfortable 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which was close to Houston temperatures at that time of year. But for the first few nights, the crew chose to sleep in the docking adapter, where it was a pleasant 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Two days of hectic repair work, the astronauts began moving into Skylab, their home away from home. They had their first meal in the wardroom with its picture window looking out on space and the Earth 270 miles below, and they held a news conference. Mission Commander Conrad predicted that if not this crew, then the next, equipped with the right tools, will be able to get a pesky solar panel out and working. Dr. Joseph Kerwin was asked how the crew is adjusting to the weightlessness of space. You do have a sense of up and down, and you can change it in two seconds whenever it's convenient to you. Uh, if you go from one module into the other and you're upside down, you say to your brain, brain, I want that way to be up, and your brain says, okay, and that way is up. And uh, if you want to rotate 90 degrees and work that way, your brain will follow you. Uh, I don't think it's vestibular at all. I think it's strictly eyeballs and brain, and it's uh, remarkably efficient. We're just passing over Puget Sound. It's a very clear day today. We can see Vancouver Island. I can see Cole Whitney Island and Bob Rainier. Okay, we see the Pacific Coast there. Well, the first thing that's obvious to me is that man can work up here. And uh, surprisingly enough, in the workshop, we are doing uh, what I consider a lot more physical task, that is, exercising our muscles than I thought we would, which has been one of the problems that I thought we might have. And uh, as you might expect, I think all of us are a little stiff from using muscles that we didn't expect to use and that we don't use on the ground to hold ourselves in the proper way to use the tools and everything. There is no doubt in my mind that uh, all the Earth resources 
Indeed, the orbital workshop did cool down as time passed, and the crew became more confident it could complete its 28-day mission. However, as the crew moved into Skylab, the power demand increased to the point that something had to be done, especially if three missions were to be attempted on the workshop. The Skylab astronauts spent their sixth day in space taking pictures of the Earth and the Sun. Temperatures in the cabin were in the mid-80s and Commander Pete Conrad said he was no longer worried about overheating. Much of the work schedule aboard Skylab was canceled today and the astronauts are experiencing a kind of brownout. Fans in the cabin have been shut off despite temperatures in the 80s, and the astronauts have orders to save whatever electricity they can. There's a possibility that power problems could curtail all three scheduled Skylab missions. Here's more from Roy Neal in Houston. The Skylab astronauts have had to face up to an increasing shortage of electrical power in their orbiting workshop. Today they had to cut out some important planned studies of Earth resources. Two of 18 batteries on board have failed, and some of the rest are running down faster than expected, so they have to be charged more frequently. But that's why planners and mission control had to cut back. Apparently, there's not much that can be done to fix the electrical power system that is working to make it work better. So a high priority has now been given to a second main system that's not working, the solar wings on the main body of the spacecraft. During launch, one was knocked off, the second was jammed. A team of astronauts has been working to find a way to get the jammed wing to swing up and out. If they come up with a solution, Conrad and Weitz will go outside the workshop in their spacesuits, perhaps as early as Sunday, and try to fix it. If they can't, the second crew to go up will have to take special tools because the wing repair job has become so important. But the second system has its own set of batteries and chargers. Without power from them, the entire Skylab program will be extremely limited. On the plus side, today, the astronauts were able to use their solar telescopes. They sent back television showing the commander, Pete Conrad, working the complicated controls, sighting the sun, and sending back pictures like this one, a coronagraph, blocking out the sun's rays so that scientists could study the corona, much like an eclipse of the sun here on Earth. Tomorrow, the astronauts are scheduled for a day off in space, but they may put the television camera that made these pictures outside for a good look at the jam solar wing that has become so important. Roy Neal, NBC News, Houston. After the crew indicated that they believed they could release the stuck solar array, plans were begun to accomplish the task by performing an EVA scheduled for June 7th. During Mission Day 3, a planned news conference was canceled in order for the crew to discuss with the ground the EVA plans. Even as these details of the planned EVA were defined, the crew continued to change the spacecraft from launch configuration to preparing the scientific experiments, which would begin in full on Mission Day 5, May 29th. While the crew was unpacking the orbital workshop, performing what experiments they could and preparing for the EVA, back on Earth, the ground team, led by Rusty Swigert, evaluated the problem of releasing the solar array. Of course, information and pictures from the crew assisted Marshall Space Flight Center to assemble a reasonable simulation of the actual hardware in space. Swigert's team developed a two-person EVA plan during which the astronauts would exit the station through the airlock module and move to the antenna boom at the end of the workshop. Then, they would attach a 26-foot cable cutter on a pole to the debris area. 
And then one of the astronauts would use the pole as a makeshift EVA handrail to reach the trapped solar array. Once there, the astronaut would attach a nylon rope with hooks on both ends between the solar wing and the airlock shroud. During the EVA simulation by Swigert and Skylab 4 pilot Gibson, it was proven that despite the lack of footholds in the work area, the task could be accomplished in the water tank. And the rule was, what could be completed underwater was normally possible in space. Weitz and Conrad would conduct the EVA. They would use the Apollo 7 LB lunar pressure garment modified for use in Earth orbit. The modifications were fewer thermal layers because the environment was not as hazardous as the moon surface and the lunar overboot was not required. Instead of that, a rigid sole was fitted with a restraint devised to allow use in various foot restraints on the outside of Skylab. The Skylab suit also differed because there was no portable life support system backpack. Instead, the suit used a liquid cooling garment made up of a network of coolant tubes routing cold water around the suit and returned to the workshop by the umbilical connection. The pressure garment assembly was worn over this and was attached to the gloves and helmet with visors for solar ray protection. The suit was used for the command and service module operations at launch as well as for EVAs. The pressure garment assembly provided an oxygen environment for breathing, ventilation, and pressurization. It was provided with bio-instrumentation and communications electrical provisions as well. The suits were stored in the forward compartment of the orbital workshop in foot restraints and were attached to the drying station where air was blown through the suits to dry them out after each use. The life support umbilical supplied water, oxygen, and electrical power during EVAs. It was 60 feet long with marks at five-foot intervals. It was visually tracked as the crewman exited the airlock. The umbilical supplied the astronaut's life support assembly in the suit where it was regulated and distributed throughout the suit by a pressure control unit. In an extreme emergency, an additional oxygen supply was available by a secondary oxygen pack which was usually attached to the thigh of the wearer. On June 6th, Conrad and Kerwin had detailed conversations with Swigert and practiced using the EVA tools inside the station. Finally, on June 7th, it was time to begin the EVA. Since he had worked through the simulation, Rusty Swigert was selected to be the EVA Capcom. Conrad and Kerwin exited the airlock in the darkness of a night pass. At first, they were disoriented, as they had no visual reference other than the Skylab structure. Conrad commented on where the clouds, earth, and sea had gone. But under the floodlights of the airlock shroud, Pete assembled the 25-foot-long pole and attached the cutters at one end. He then traversed along the pole to ensure that the cutters were against the debris that had to be cleared. Then he made his way back to Kerwin, whose task was to do the actual cutting. When Kerwin tried to close the cutters against the debris, he found that the cutters kept slipping because he was not able to secure a firm position for himself. For over 30 minutes, he tried in vain to close the cutters and reported 
that with one hand wrapped around the pole to restrain himself, using the other free hand to close the cutters, it was a hopeless situation. Let me direct you, Joe. You can pull the pole back. Uh, well, I can't Houston. pull it back some, I think. Oh, you, you know, we're out there. Wait a minute. Hey, that's a beautiful place to cut it, right? See? Yes. Yeah, you're in the right area if you get through those wires. <sighs> Just take your time. Okay, Houston, we're out there. We uh, we have the debris inside. There looks like enough room to get the cutter. And uh, I'm trying to help Joe stabilize. Now, Joe, you're way past it, it looks like. I don't think I am. Yes, you are. Come, come towards me. I'm not past it. No, you got, if you're going to hook it down there, you are. Well, you know what I'm going to have to do then? Wait a minute. I no. might get enough out of it there. See, I've got it tethered, and that prevents me from right. pulling it back too damn far. All right, you need to move the tether up. Wait a minute. You're still in front of it. I mean, it's down minus X side of the disc gun from the one you're operating on. That is, we operate it from the right-hand side of the disc gun. That may help you if you need more pole. It's not a question. It's not a question. I've got more than enough pole. Rusty, it's a question of keeping my feet from flying away so that I can not only reach the thing, but hold it there. Okay, the only thing I can say that in the water tank we stood up almost parallel with a disc cone uh, with our feet down by the base and used the disc cone as a handhold. That helped us. You might want to try that. I'm doing that. It's not a handhold I need, Rusty. It's a foothold. Right. We put our feet right at the the, the base of the disc cone. That's we only where they to... are, Rusty. Okay. It's easy to get it in touch, but it's impossible to get it to stay there. It was a familiar problem encountered during the Gemini EVAs, which was a lack of firm footholds. Putting pressure on the cutter created momentum in the opposite direction, and Kerwin floated away. On several occasions, Joe moved his hand away from the pole to open the cutters, only to have the cutters move away from the debris as he was trying to use them. Now his pulse was racing to 150 beats per minute. Kerwin passed into communications blackout, and he evaluated his situation. We to do that, and we understand. Okay, and for your information, uh, we're about 30 seconds from LOS, and uh, you got 26 and a half minutes of day left. And we're going to pick up a Vanguard at 5-4. That'll be after dark. Where are you going, Joe? I can't stabilize myself on this side. I just can't do it. Yeah, rest. I'll tell you what, Joe. Where's your umbilical with respect to mine? I see it. Where are we? Wait. Let me try straddling it like this. Wait, we're getting umbilicals and everything else. I'll twist it over. I think this may do it. Right here. It's been two hours and 26 minutes since the hatch has been opened. Crew is in daylight now. 54 minutes uh, of daylight remaining. We, uh, we don't know what has been transpiring naturally and won't know until we get to Goldstone. that he needed a firmer position against the edge of the workshop. Thus, he shortened his tether. 
When communications were restored with Houston, a happy astronaut reported that the cutters were securely fastened to the debris. Kerwin pulled on the lanyard to operate the cutters, but nothing happened. Seeing this, Conrad then made his way back along the beam to examine the jaws of the cutter. Just as he reached the cutter end, the jaws closed, which freed some of the metal strap in a sudden movement that catapulted Conrad into space. Fortunately, his safety tether restrained his sudden unexpected movement away from the station. The solar wing now opened to 20 degrees, and their next job was to extend it to its full 90 degrees. The partial deployment was anticipated, but the catapulting of Conrad was not. Before cutting the debris, Conrad had hooked a tether to the vent module relief hole in the boom and secured the other end to one of the solar observatory support trusses. When the cutters freed the debris, the frozen damper still resisted normal deployment because it was frozen. Both astronauts pulled on the tether to no avail. So Conrad placed his feet on the hinge, stooped to fit the tether over his shoulder, and then stood up. Kerwin again pulled on the tether, and this time the solar wing suddenly released and blast open. This catapulted both astronauts into space, although once again they were saved by their safety tethers. Here's the clip after acquisition of signal. You are now free and clear. Right, they're all accordion. Except for the mortgage, yeah, you see them? Yeah. They're all accordion about evenly, too. Well, the two outboard ones are further out than the very inboard one. Let's tell Houston to fix our gyro before we go. Yeah. Talking about stuff. Hello there, uh, we're listening to you. You're coming in loud and clear, and we see SAS amps. Yeah, okay. well, let's take care of our Z-Gyro. We ain't got any of them. Okay, we're looking at it. All right, I'll tell you where we are. We got the wing out locked. The outboard panel and the middle panel are about, about the same amount. And the third one is not quite. Now, Joe, I think before you come in, you better take a look up there and make sure that third one is clearing all the debris. That's what you're fucking me. All right? I can do that myself from right here. I can get there from here. Okay, uh, Pete, we want to understand uh, that the outboard two were uh, almost all the way out last time no. you looked in the inboard no, no, one. No, 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 no. They are further out than the inboard one, but none of them are out very far. All of them are accordion evenly, and the angles between the panels look to me like about 20 degrees, Rusty. So they've got a good long way to go. Okay, are they still moving? And how long ago did you get them out? Got them out about five or eight minutes ago, and they're not still moving. Doesn't look to me like they're moving at all. If they are, it's really super slow. I don't think they're moving. No doubt in my mind, they're... They're staying right where they are for the moment. You guys are going to bake them out, right? Uh, that's the plan. Okay. I think you're going to have to do that. That's what I'm saying. I, I'm trying to... Slow them down as a fast, Pete, and let's get going. You know, I want to... Okay. Excuse me. <laughs> okay, uh, Pete, can you tell us uh, where you are? Are you still out near the uh, SAS wing, or what's your status there? I'm down going headed for the SAS. Right this instant, I'm almost, I'm in the SAS, and I'm getting ready to pull in all my umbilical. Joe, can you see my umbilical? Just a second, I was doing a 360 to get mine in Yeah, well, I'm trying to, let me get in here with my umbilical in the right place. I think I want to do it that way, right? Okay, Pete, just out of curiosity, did you cut through the strap or pry it, or what'd you do with it? Cut through it. And I'll tell you what, let me tell you what it was. It, it was where the shield had torn 
off of both sides of the angle so that we had two angles and a doubler with the bolts in it. Get no flanges. This is Skylab Control. Uh, we've had loss of signal at Texas. Uh, tracking ship Vanguard will acquire in about nine minutes. The solar array wing is out. The bolt cutters uh, successful uh, in severing that aluminum strap. The three solar cell panels on the uh, on the wing not fully deployed the the inboard one uh, less deployed than the other two the plan is to initiate a uh, maneuver with the spacecraft 45 degree pitch maneuver to get that wing uh, more into the sun warm it up and it's believed uh, that the panels will then deploy uh, fully or at least more fully. Everybody listen up. Okay, I got a message I'd like to read to you. It's to Skylab Commander Conrad. On behalf of the American people, I congratulate and commend you and your crew on the successful effort to repair the world's first true space station. In the two weeks since you left the Earth, you have more than fulfilled the prophecy of your parting words, we can fix anything. All of us now have new courage that man can work in space to control his environment, improve his circumstances, and exert his will even as he does on Earth. Signed, Richard Nixon. from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 407 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab. We can fix anything. Our next episode should be released on or about February 16th. If you would like to be notified by email when the new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email on the form. Next time, we will celebrate our 10th anniversary as a podcast. I know it wasn't very long ago that we celebrated episode 400, but I still couldn't let the 10th anniversary go by without saying something. Not many podcasts may get to 10 years, so I think it is worth at least a tang ceremony. This will probably be the last celebration for a while, so make sure you're here next episode. Okay, I also want to announce that there are two new methods of contributing to the podcast for your convenience. That is Zelle and Venmo. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. But if you do, you can use it. You can use these to send money to my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Webmaster Justin also put the QR codes for my Zelle and Venmo on the homepage for your convenience. You don't really need them, but if you want to do it a little bit faster, you can use them. But the important thing is to just know that email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Speaking of donations, the 2023 donors page is ready to be checked now, so if you have a chance, click on the donors page and make sure you are in the correct level and have the correct amount amount of emojis. If there is any problem, send me an email, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to fix it. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 227 are available on the Archive Podcast. 
search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow on Facebook, search for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History, where in addition to episodes, I sometimes occasionally post extra stuff. have a few afterthoughts. Uh, I'm going to try to make them quick because I really went a little long on this episode. I want to, as always, apologize for my mispronunciations. Well, I am glad they return, remembered to turn off the front thruster on the A-quad pack of the service module. I would have had hated to have toasted Paul White's. Now that was a dangerous EV, EVA for Paul, standing up and Kerwin holding him. I bet it got a little scary when he almost got pulled out of the capsule. I guess if he did, if they did lose him, they would have went after him with the command and service module. That would have been tricky, though, you know, getting back in, catching the the hatch there and getting back in. I don't know. Seems like that'd be a little bit tricky. You know, they, they took some risks back then, back in 73. <laughs> but to me, the most dangerous EVA to date was going to fix the solar wing. NASA certainly did not plan on having to do something like that, or there would have been more footholds and handholds. Wow, these guys were really brave. You listen to Conrad on that EVA, and he sounds like he's taking a stroll in the backyard. In contrast with Kerwin, who was doing most of the work, and getting very frustrated. I wonder why they didn't have Pete just do the cutting part of the uh, mission, you know, cutting the strap, but just swap places with Pete. He seemed, Pete seemed so much calmer, and he and it was Joe's first EVA. But still, these guys were cowboys, getting catapulted off the station only to be caught by their safety tether. <laughs> wow, that was so impressive. My hat is off to Joe and Pete. They really could fix anything. In our personal life, the most exciting thing that happened was we had to get Mrs. SRH some emergency dental surgery. Believe it or not, one of her wisdom teeth broke through her gum and actually got infected. And she started hurting bad. But on one of those rare occasions where appointments seemed to line up, there was surgery available very quickly. We got it done in just a few days. And thankfully, she recovered quickly, and the pain is gone now. So that was very good. Most of the outside work on the farm has been put on hold mainly because we're getting so much rain. It's just a muddy mess out there. I believe this to be one of the wettest winters we have had in a good while. Okay, that's about all I have for my personal life. Moving on, I was very pleased to receive 14 donations and pledges over the past fortnight. I'd like to thank Peter W. from Germany who donated at the Orion level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Peter M. from California who donated at the Orion level and earned an alien emoji. Paul K. from Wisconsin who donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a space communications dish emoji. James P. from Texas donated at the Apollo level and earned a Nova emoji. Andy S. from the Czech Republic donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Stefan F. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Ian M. from Ontario, Canada donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. 
George L. from Atlanta, Georgia, donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Terrence G. donated at the Mercury level. Craig H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level and earned a Nova emoji. Lewis W. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Lynn S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. John M. from Ohio increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level and earned a shooting star emoji. Ed H. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors for 2023 have reached 243. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and personal checks for 2023 have reached 264 with a goal of reaching 454 this year. So, if you're enjoying the podcast that has been running now for almost 10 years without commercial interruptions and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check or use the QR codes to donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And, by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. We have about 25 supporters who have earned the Space Communications Dish Longevity Emoji for nine years of support. Want to give them a big shout out. Thank you, Grant, Christian, William, John, Stephen, George, PJ, Peter, Frazier, Kurt, Paul, two Anonymouses, Johan, Buddy, Robert, Charlotte, Mike, David, W., Julio, Chris, Andy, Ben, Carrie, and David V. We really appreciate it. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. As you know, the winner for this episode will get the choice of the beautiful SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Daniel Myslovec. Daniel Myslovec, if you would email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 264 of you who contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC News, NBC News, CBS News, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 408 posted on or about February 16th, 2023. Get your tang ready. <laughs>